Welcome to Food Connection, the podcast where we talk about all things food and cooking and chat with our favorite Phoenix chefs. I am Pascal Dionneau, the co-host with Chef Lou Swartz and Danielle Sanders. Okay, so welcome to episode four of Food Connection. I am with Pascal Dionneau and Lou Swartz, and we thought today instead of talking about food, maybe we would focus on the service side of the industry because Pascal just had a interesting service experience this weekend. I mean, I think we all have good stories or, I mean, at least stories yes. <laughs> about bad yes, service. Stories, or, absolutely. Yeah. So do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah, bad service or just bad comments or bad, uh, bad uh, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, yeah, bad, bad bad reaction or a bad comment from a waiter or a busboy. Actually, the funny thing just happened uh, two nights ago. We were in uh, the Venetian in Las Vegas, and uh, in the last minute we were looking for something to eat. We had uh, to go see a show. And we ended up in um, one of those B&B restaurants, which I think is, uh, is for Batali and Bastianich. And he has in the Venetian and the Palazzo there's at least three restaurants, one which is a cheap Italian restaurant, one which is a burger place, another one that is a lot of fancier stuff. And we were in a fancier restaurant, and actually uh, tons of waiters, uh, attentive, long uh, white apron, uh, tablecloths on the table, Villa wine, Bosch uh, uh, plates. I mean, uh, obviously they spend a lot of money. The wine list is pretty, uh, pretty extensive. I mean, nice place. And the funny thing is when we, um, they give us some bread, so they have a bread plate, they ask you if you want butter or olive oil, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And but there's no bread knife. So after a while, I asked the um, the busboy. I said right before the second course, actually, I said, could we please have a butter knife? And he points to the uh, the big knife on the right side of the plate, and he goes, use this one. <laughs> and uh, I so I look at him. I said, okay. And then he adds, well, you don't need one anyway because the next course is pasta. Which kind of makes sense because if you do that pasta, I mean, you you know, you don't eat bread and butter with pasta. I know I wouldn't. But the funny thing is, usually when a customer asks for something, you kind of uh, say yes, sir, I'll bring it to you. So my um, actually, I came up with the idea that they don't have butter knife because we asked the uh, the waitress also. She said, oh, I'll bring you one, and she never came back with one. So <laughs> I don't know what's the point of putting a um, a butter plate and bring butter and bread and. Uh, no not have a knife. knife, so it was kind of silly. But yes, I made mean, kind of funny when um, when they, when I said bring one, and he looked and he said use this one. I was kind of shocked. I actually have uh, two not necessarily uh, good re- uh, reviews as far as places uh, around uh, the Phoenix area. And I don't know if I should name the place. I won't name the place. The ones the ones open. The one actually just uh, closed or or changed their uh, venue, but uh, or changed their whole you know restaurant and everything else that. Uh, but the one I. Uh, had a chef that uh, I used to work for came out from uh, Philadelphia and, and was visiting and I recommended we, we go to this restaurant and we sat down and we ordered our food and I ordered uh, I think it was sea bass it came with like some type of broth they were going to serve at table side and I remember the waiter came out with a kind of a really shitty attitude and just said do you want the broth that goes with it? And I'm like, of course. You know, I was like, why the hell would I would not no. want the broth? And yeah. I was like, if it comes with the dish, of course I want it. Uh, and then about 15, 20 minutes later, we're all kind of wrapping up, but everything's, you know, we're still eating. We're just kind of, we're talking, we're having a good time. And 
and the waiter came back and reached in to grab my old chef's dinner plate, and he wasn't done. And you know, you don't mess with the with with no. uh, French. French. Yeah, yeah. He, he he goes. I will let you know when I'm done, and until then, do not touch my plate. And the guy you know, just backed off and, and walked away. The second one was uh, when Central Bistro, and I can I can say that because they're they're kind of they're they're going they're changed. They just opened up, and it was a couple of years ago, I, I guess. And I sat at the bar with uh, we won't name the individual that I sat with either, so we'll, we'll leave that too because you know that failed as well as the restaurant. Um, <laughs> But we're sitting at the at the bar, and the waitress came over, hand us the the, the the drink menu, and then two minutes later comes back and goes, are you going to order anything else, or are you going to drink anything else besides water tonight? Oh, wow. And I said, I'll let you know when I get done looking at the menu. We just literally sat down, and, and then she just storms off and doesn't come back for 15 minutes, walks by every now and again and just kind of give us a dirty look and, and kept walking. Finally, we had to flag somebody down and say, can we get a, a drink order because, uh, you know, this lady's not going to take our order. And actually, we had a couple of bad times there. Uh, we were sitting uh, out on the patio and the waiter took our order for, you know, we wanted a glass of wine. He was going for 25 minutes before we finally got our bottle, you know, our glass of wine. It's like, what the hell are you doing? You stomping grapes in the kitchen or what? And I was like, she ain't get the orders right and you can see why they're they no longer are in business anymore. I didn't realize that they were gone. Yeah, they just changed over to, um, I can't remember what they changed over to, but... Yeah, service, service. service is uh, service is 50% of the success of a meal, I'd say. I remember Charlie Trotter one day t- saying into a lecture that he did, and he said that he sees a restaurant in three parts, 33, 33, 33, the food, the service, and the wine list. Now, of course, uh, Charlie could say that because he had a $6 million wine list. Uh, in his restaurant in Chicago, so obviously his wine list was uh, was really a feature or part of the of the, the success of his uh, of his restaurant. But I would say service is a good fifty percent of the success of a meal. Uh, I mean, you can have the best food and uh, some idiot serving it; it just just ruins the whole evening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, you're talking about bistro, and it reminds me another story of uh, of uh, in a restaurant here in town uh, that has the word bistro in it. <laughs> I won't say the other word; you'll figure it out. And uh, it was about three, four years ago, and Donna and I were finishing one evening. We didn't have a class. It may have been on a weekend. I forgot. And uh, we finished around 8 o'clock here. We realized we didn't have dinner. So she said, well, let's stop there and have a, a cheese charcuterie plate. So we sat down at those high tables they have by the bar. And so we ordered that cheese uh, a charcuterie uh, platter that comes on a nice piece of wood, beautiful. And as soon as the, uh, she, sits, she sets the, um, the platter on our table, and it is one of the cheese, the little wedge of cheese, all greasy by the edge of the, of the crust, <laughs> which is usually a sign that the, the, the cheese, especially those, uh, those triple cream or high uh, fat content cheese, it's a sign that it's going, uh, going a little bad. So with the tip of my knife, I taste a little corner, and you know that when the, the cheese is a little fizzy on your tongue, it's like it's yeah. kind, kind of a, you know that it starts to be a little bad. So I tell Dana, I said, oh, skip this, I don't think this is, this is not good. So we keep on talking about the business and we eat the whole, uh, whole platter. She finally let the uh, little waitress come back. Uh, I say little because uh, I guess we were on a high top. Uh, <laughs> so she looked a little smaller. And uh, she grabs the platter and any good waiter, when you remove a plate and there's an item that nobody's touched on the, on the plate, right. should ask, was, uh, was there anything wrong with this? So first she asks us if we're still working on it. 
which is an expression that I can't stand because uh, if I was working, I wouldn't be in a restaurant working. We said, no, we're done. And as she takes the whole thing, I say, oh, by the way, could you please tell the chef that this, this piece of cheese is not very good? It's not good. And uh, her smile just immediately disappears. And, uh, and it almost looks like she's going to cry. And then she tells me, oh, you know, it takes, it takes a special palate to appreciate those French cheeses. <laughs> so I almost fell off the stool and uh, I was laughing so hard. And finally, I didn't mean, I didn't want to tell her anything else. So I said, no, I meant, I didn't mean I don't like it. I just said it's past. It's uh, and maybe you know, do whatever you want. Maybe I thought you, you, the chef shouldn't serve it again to serve that cheese to somebody. And uh, and then she leaves the table all crushed and bummed out and come back two minutes later she made saying, that cheese personally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and telling me that oh the chef tasted the cheese from your board and said it's fine. So I said really. So I my first in, my first impression. So of course I asked if the chef was there because I knew the name of the chef. Well, the chef wasn't there that night. So the sous chef or uh, somebody else was running the kitchen. So I tell Donna and I said, you see, this is what happened when there's an absentee chef in the kitchen. Usually things go bad. End of conversation. And about five minutes later, the manager comes and tells me, you're having a problem with the cheese. So I said, I look at him and I said, no, I don't have a problem with the cheese. You have a problem with the cheese because you serve a cheese that's not good. And he goes, well, the chef tasted it and he said it was good. And I said, you too? I said, everybody's going to come to my table telling me, uh, uh, and, and I'm, I'm like, I, I really don't know what to say anymore. Yeah. So finally I said, whatever happened to the guest is always right. And he goes, oh, you're right. The guest is right. Can I bring you anything else? <laughs> and I said, finally, it took 10 minutes for somebody to say the right thing here. You know what I mean, I mean, it's just, just absolutely amazing. I cannot, I, I, I cannot fathom the... And, and, and when we had a full-time program, I used to tell my students, whether not about cheese tray or anything, but about anything in a, in a kitchen, I said, when you serve somebody, imagine that that guest knows as much as you do about food or more. You cannot just assume, oh, those idiots don't know anything about French cheese, so it doesn't matter if it's a little past or whatever, they won't, they won't know. I, I hope it's not the attitude that they had, but it's just absolutely mind-boggling that uh, to see a restaurant that still argue with you uh, when you say uh, this is not good. I remember another, uh, another restaurant in Portland, actually, about five, six years ago, when the guy, there was a blue cheese or gorgonzola. It was a domestic gorgonzola printed on the menu. And I said, why domestic gorgonzola? And uh, the waiter says, oh, because they're much stronger than Rockford or, uh, or Italian gorgonzola. And I said, how so? And, and he went on with some stupid uh, uh, reason and uh, completely out of, out of whack. I mean, saying stupid things about, about cheese. And I was looking at him. Why do, why do restaurant manager let waiter say just about anything they, they can think of to the customer? I don't know. I don't get it. And I, I would imagine mostly it's because of a lack of training rather than, uh, than anything else. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. There's, there's no training. And, and uh, I was saying when uh, Georges Perrier came into the restaurant that I was working at uh, years ago and asked the waitress, where do we get our cheeses from? You know, who's our uh, supplier? supplier of it? And uh, she goes, uh, let me go check and see. And he didn't let her leave because right. he's like, how the hell do you not know? And you're out here serving this on a cheese cart, and you don't know where you're getting your cheese from or what you're even serving. Maybe, you know? And you could hear him from he, the dining room. Did he the... hear her or ripped her clothes no, off or something? No, no, he wasn't. He, he 
was actually uh, under control, and uh, like I said, I was surprised because that was the same day that I uh, wound up uh, placing my elbow directly into in the directly Jeez. into his sternum. Yeah, so <laughs> he's a short guy. He's a short guy. He's a little guy, and when I turned around with my elbow, and I didn't know he was standing right there, and I just planted it right in the middle of his chest, and uh, I heard him go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought I was dead, but uh, now he uh, he saved his wrath for uh, out in the dining room, and uh, he ripped him a new one. So I had a former cook that did that work there for about six months, and uh, uh, every week he used to tell us stories about his week in the kitchen with Georges Perrier. And he said, yeah, usually he uh, he yelled probably more at the, the wait staff than he did the kitchen. And a story that I love is he's yelling at one of his waiters, and the waiter is like 6'2", and uh, Georges is a little French guy, and he's just grabbing the guy by the sleeve of the tuxedo, and he's yanking on the sleeve of the tuxedo, <laughs> and finally, the sleeve's rips start ripping right at the shoulder, and you hear the he hears the rip, and he sees the white f uh, uh, stuff sticking out of the black tuxedo, and he thought it's it's fun or whatever, and yank, he yanks the sleeve as hard as he could <laughs> downwards, rip the sleeve off the tuxedo, and start slapping the guy <laughs> with the tuxedo sleeve, <laughs> and chased him outside all the way to the front door, threw the sleeve outside on the sidewalk, and said, come back when you have a new tuxedo. <laughs> That's funny. I guess we all had a similar story with bad service, uh, you know, fairly closer to home, if you want to, so to speak, you know, remember when I was running a a special and uh, our waiter went out to the table instead of saying uh, polenta he went out there and told the <laughs> placenta. placenta we had yeah. sweet corn placenta I'm yes like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he also used to ask people if they wanted red wine white wine or rosé which is when he mixed the two wines together did he yes he did and i saw him and i was like don't do that that's not what rosé is and so then i see him a few minutes later pouring the two wines together again i said what are you doing don't don't do that and he goes i'm not calling it rosé anymore i'm just asking if they want red white or the mix and i was like <laughs> i was like nobody wants the mix he's a mixologist over there yeah, he oh is. He forgot about him. The Heisenberg of, uh, of wine over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Another thing that was interesting is I just saw that April Bloomfield, who is the chef of Spotted Pig and a whole bunch of other right. restaurants in New York, is opening a butcher shop. And I think that's a very trendy thing right now is people finally opening butcher shops and, you know, utilizing all the cuts of meat. You know, now it's in to have chicken skin and right. pig ears right. and all that kind of thing. Right. Use all the trash stuff and charge a bunch of money for it. I haven't ever really been able to find a good butcher here. In Minnesota growing up, we always got all our meat from a butcher. We would drive like two hours out to some farmy town and get a quarter cow and a half a pig and really? a half a lamb. We did always... I think it's a great idea to have a butcher shop. The problem is, this is something I've always uh, uh, entertained, the idea of uh, doing, uh, not opening a special store, but uh, doing uh, butchering classes here at the school. The problem is, you know, I mean, it's kind of fun to debone a uh, leg of uh, veal and show him the knuckle, the eye of round, the top round, the bottom round, the top solo, and all the different cuts, and talk about the tenderness of each cut. The problem is a leg of veal is $450, and uh, then what do we do with the with all the pieces? I mean, we can cook a few uh, scallopini, mm -hmm. but that's a lot of scallopini uh, in a 70-pound uh, leg. Uh, and the same thing with the, with the side of beef or whatever, which also are, are, are getting difficult to get. I mean, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is really it's a, a lot of money to then I don't know exactly how to recoup the money in a class. Right. 
And obviously a supermarket or a restaurant or a butcher shop doesn't want to ship this meat here, have me cut it and take it back. <laughs> uh, no. That might not even be uh, allowed by the health department. Definitely a great idea. And uh, Spotted Pig in New York actually, we, uh, I was in New York, uh, what, three months ago? And uh, we decided to eat at the Spotted Pig. And I called for a reservation and they told me they didn't take reservations. So we showed up at 6.30, 7 o'clock quite early in the evening. I mean, early for New York City. Mm. And it's a very small place, uh, kind of fun, tons of flowers and plants and everything. And they said, well, we're booked. And we knew they didn't take reservation. And uh, they said, right now, the first uh, table we'll have would be 11 o'clock. And it was seven o'clock at night, and I saw a few people waiting outside and at the bar, and uh, and the guy said, "Would you like to wait?" I said, "No, sorry, can't wait. Uh, can't wait from seven to eleven o'clock for dinner." But uh, yes, I'm. Uh, I was absolutely dying to uh, to try to taste uh, to 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 taste yeah, which is English, isn't she? And which is uh, which is kind of interesting because thirty years of uh, of jokes about English food that I keep on saying in my class, it kind of be fun to actually see a, an English uh, chef who proves me wrong and uh, show me that. Uh, but I mean, actually, uh, uh, everybody says her food is absolutely wonderful. I do go to Hackenmuller's every Thanksgiving to get a turkey because they have fresh turkeys from Minnesota, but I know you say there's no such thing as a fresh turkey. I mean, really? Well, not really, unless unless you really buy it from a farmer and you see the turkey running around on the Sunday and you say, I want this one for next Thursday, then it's probably going to be well, fresh. And I mean, there is it is kind of like icy in the, in the middle but when you pull the Yes, out. because <laughs> any... Uh, any piece of any meat that has been slaughtered in a, a regular uh, slaughterhouse and inspected and sent to a butcher shop or a supermarket, the health department says that poultry is fresh when it's stored at 26 degrees Fahrenheit. So, yeah. and as a matter of fact, last year uh, here in Phoenix, in August, now if you remember, end of July of August, they recalled a whole bunch of chicken and for salmonella or something and then uh, I looked a little bit further they uh, noticed that the chicken had been slaughtered in March so the fresh chicken slaughtered in March uh, sell, sold in the end of July so I don't know but uh, so yes anything anything when you buy uh, from a supermarket the turkey was frozen or the chicken was frozen well I told you what happened with my turkey that same year with when I bought turkey nuts Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I bought turkey necks from a grocery store that we, we still go to. I won't say who it is because it's kind of a... Well, no, Albertsons is not family. I mean, it's a big yeah, chain. It's a big chain. Yeah, it's a big Yeah, okay, so we got our... We got, I got turkey necks at Albertsons to make turkey stock so I could make gravy because I wasn't going to be able to pick up my fresh turkey until the day before Thanksgiving and I wanted to do it ahead of time. So I got turkey necks. And I put them in the pan to brown them first so I could deglaze the pan. And I noticed there was something that looked like a worm that was hanging out of one of the necks. And I was like, what is that? And I thought it was a tendon or something. So I'm looking at it. And I didn't want to believe that it was a bug or something gross because that's too disgusting. So I was trying to keep calm. And I was yelling at everyone in my house for it to come for help to look at it so I turned my back and I went to go find Billy and I came back and the whatever the thing was was not no longer in the turkey neck it was in the pan you just crawled out I guess so because how else would it come out and so I'm and so then yeah it was it was in the pan it was moving all around and I don't know if it was from the heat of the pan that was making mm -hmm. it but anyways it was horrifying and I 
we'll never buy turkey necks again. And we, my mom went to the, went back there and told them what happened. And they just, and I mean, I don't know if it was something that was like, you know, came in after, after they cut it up and packaged it. It was some kind of weird buggy thing that I don't know how it happened, but she told the ma the manager and the manager said, oh, um, we've been using the same purveyor for years. We've never had a problem before. It's just the throat that was in the turkey neck. It's the throat. But well, it's possible that it's the, uh, the what is how it, did the it esophagus, so that little, that little pipe. But how did it come out of the neck? Huh? But how did it come out of the that's, neck? That's easy. Well, it, it, and it, 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 sometimes you do see food, uh, uh, especially tendons or fat that kind of moves in the pan or shrink when you cook it. But how was it in the neck and then not in the neck, in the pan? I don't know. Did you hear anything? Any uh, any coffee Turk? Tur turkey coughing or anything? No? <laughs> that's what the farmers use for bait. They use live bait to catch the, the, tur the turkeys, you know? Oh, it's the worm yeah, too the that they use to catch yeah. the turkey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like You're fishing. kidding, right? I would imagine it was the little uh, the little pipe. Uh, I don't know. Tube. It was. Yeah. I still am done with but, yeah, turkeys. That's, that's, probably that's pretty just nasty. turkeys in general. Yeah. But I must say, and I've never really cooked a whole bunch of turkey necks. Yeah, I will never do it again. Need my lesson. <laughs> So, I have a few questions again. Dave on our Facebook asked, so he said, why would you choose port instead of Cabernet for a reduction sauce? Well, port is a sweet wine, Cabernet is a dry wine. Uh, and as a matter of fact, actually we did a sauce class not long ago and you were there. Yes, I did. we did both of those sauces, come to think of it. The uh, using a cab is what the French call sauce bordelaise, as uh, Bordeaux uh, red wine is majority cab. And uh, uh, the other sauce that we made, we used port, and then we finished it with blue cheese, and we served it with a pork tenderloin. So port is a sweet wine, cab is a dry wine. So you want a sweet sauce, use port. You want a dry sauce, use uh, cab. I mean that's, uh, <laughs> that's easy, easy enough. enough. And then my friend Emily has a couple questions. I don't know if you'll really be able to answer one of them, but she said, this is perhaps a bit specific, but I've always wondered if it's true or not. I read somewhere that to get the most nutritional value out of garlic, you have to crush it or cut it up and then let it sit for a while, at least a minute before cooking it. Is that true or hooey? We were dumbfounded by the same thing. I mean, in, in the industry, we don't really have time to let it sit to do any of that, so I, I've never... Never knew anything about it uh, until we, we came in here, sat down, and we started talking to you about it, and you handed us all these uh, pamphlets on, on you know, <laughs> cutting pamphlets. it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I didn't know anything about it. I actually have a, a friend uh, who's a nutritionist, and I'm sure she'd be able to fill us in more on, on that kind of uh, stuff. But, I mean, reading the stuff that you gave to us, I mean, it's saying you let the garlic sit for 15 minutes at room temperature to the the, en the enzyme reaction that boosts the healthy compounds in the garlic and well it's i, I don't know where to, where to go with that it's 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 evident and it's sure that if you just throw a piece of a, a whole garlic clove into a sauce 
and uh, uh, let's say you're doing an alfredo sauce, you reduce some cream and you throw a whole gar uh, clove of garlic, reduce your cream for five minutes until it starts to thicken and coat the spoon, you're gonna get very little garlic flavor out of that whole right. clove. And if you do crush it or, or, or shred it or, or, or puree it, definitely you're gonna get way more flavor. What, the, what I'm reading here and what they're talking about is about a compound called allicine, allicine, a-double-L-double-I-C-I-N, and that's the health-promoting things that does develop after you've uh, uh, chopped the uh, garlic. Now, I didn't, I never heard about uh, uh, allicine before or anything. I definitely knew that if you chop garlic, you're going to get more flavor than if you hold a whole clove. That's for sure. And uh, one thing, actually, you would want to uh, mention also that uh, is often happens in restaurants is one thing you don't want to do is chop your garlic, put it in olive oil, and keep it for days and days and days and the reason for this is bachelism and bachelism and this is the same thing could happen with leftover baked potatoes when a restaurant have leftover baked potato they wrap them in aluminum foil in order to trap the moisture in it and they basically keep them at room temperature for a couple of days until they shred them to make the the, the breakfast stuff we call this the, the hash browns brown or whatever any root or any tuber or anything that goes in the ground. There is actually, we all know that in the ground there is a chemical compound called anthrax. That's why we don't eat much dirt. And all those roots actually do have a component that eventually will turn into botulism. And when you pour your garlic in oil, and botulism is a, a bacteria, is what, what they call it anaerobic, meaning that it grows away from the air. As a matter of fact, as soon as it's in the air, it stops growing. And if you cover it, uh, you put it in a can, or you cover it with oil, that's when it starts growing. So if you do want to keep your garlic for a while in, um, in uh, olive oil, you should put a pinch of citric acid or a little bit of lemon juice in it, or best of all is uh, chop your garlic every day, uh, rather than taking a risk. But that chopping the garlic and letting it sit for five minutes before using it is um, interesting, and uh, I don't know if it's a huge, huge, huge deal. Isn't that what they always say? It's not... It's not the mayonnaise you get sick from, it's the potato. People always get sick from potato salad. Yeah, I don't know. It's very possible. Yeah, and botulism is serious. Huh? I mean, botulism kills. Yeah. So it's not like salmonella is not fun, but uh, botulism is. I'd buy some botulism in a restaurant. I would never, if I hear this, I would never, ever go to that restaurant again. That's ever. why I want to learn how to can, because I'd be scared to just. That's why. Yes, yes, and you, you, everybody's heard that when you get a can that is uh, that is bulging or whatever, uh, don't even open it. Throw it away or get your money back because uh, chances are uh, it was poorly pasteurized or something happened. And as I say, bachelism kills. I had a. And it's not something you taste either. I had a guy come uh, and drop off salsa that he was canning in uh, in Phoenix, and he was actually using a commercial uh, kitchen to can his salsa, and I tasted it. And it was all right, so I put it in the refrigerator, kept it there for a few days, and I'm like, oh, let me let me see about putting that salsa and you know into tomato sauce to make it a little bit spicy. I opened up the can, and I swear to God, straight from the refrigerator, it was boiling inside of the inside of the yeah. container. Yeah, it's foaming. It was it was bubble it was bubbling up and boiling and. I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. I was like, oh that's dear scary. lord. And that's why I don't. Uh, when people like when they hand out stuff that are, you know, canned uh, or you know they they preserve or whatever else like that, you yeah. know, at parties and stuff like that, and the little you know going out the door present, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you're just like, 
Oh, isn't that cute? And the first thing I do is I find a trash can and just drop it in there because I'm not going to get sick because, you know, I've seen their house. I'm not going to, you know. That's why potlucks are disgusting. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. We, my old neighborhood in Phoenix, we had, uh, they had a winter pot or a Christmas potluck. And it was, I thought it was really cute because everybody, I mean, people don't do that anymore. But I did not want to eat anything. It was. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I know there's all kinds of like cat hoarders yeah, and stuff in our neighborhood. Lady. Crazy cat lady, yeah. Um, but this is what people brought to. I mean, there was a bunch of old people, so we had all the Jello salads and the casseroles. Some lady made chicken and dumplings with like real. You could tell it's like real stock and homemade dumplings mm-hmm. and stuff. But someone brought a bucket of KFC. Someone brought one of those Stouffer's French bread pizzas. Oh. They like must have just. Well, those are probably the safer stuff too. Well, yeah, you're right. There's so much chemical on it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was reading not long ago, or a while ago, I was reading that uh, a church picnic actually is the big things for food poisoning. I, I'm sure. And uh, and I would suspect suspect the deviled eggs at the church picnic. And my question actually is, why does a church picnic always have to have deviled eggs? Another thing also is why don't we have angel eggs? That's we have devil cake, we have angel cake, but yeah. we have only have devil eggs. But yes, no church have to have the devil egg, and uh, the devil does it every time. Yeah. There's a, a few people, you know, good old Mrs. Smith. She makes a devil egg the day before because uh, they were a big success last year, and this year she's gonna make twice as much. But she doesn't have room in the fridge, so they sit outside all night on, uh, until <laughs> Sunday. Then they go to the church, and after the church, everybody eats those things, and. Uh, and everybody just um, just puke. <laughs> I mean, uh, and um, the devil did it. What are you gonna do? Well, it's a scene of The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so she has another question too. Which kind of onion is best for what kind of dish? But what, how do you know when to use a red onion or when when to use a sweet onion or Vidalia onion? I guess it all depends on the dish. Um, I mean, if you're looking to make a like a French onion soup, you know, the sweet the Vidali onions are, are fantastic. If you're looking to, you know, I mean, pop of color, I mean, aesthetically pleasing, you're going to go with the red onion or, or green onion or something in, in you know, a potato salad or, or, or salsa or whatever it might be. You know, so there's different uh, reasons that you would use those things. I mean, you had, like I said, either aesthetics or, or the, the sugar content in the, in the onion for caramelizing or whatever it might be so way on what's going to be your major flavors of your dish would be a reason what onion you would use so weigh that into uh, your decision making when you're when you're purchasing it and then um, what your dish is going to look like uh, as the final result so those are major you know issues right there so yes i would uh, if i could add something i'd say i I mean, my own experience and what I've learned throughout the years is uh, uh, whenever a recipe calls for onion, you're talking about either Spanish onion or yellow onions. Red onions, uh, I would use them for when serving a raw onion, a little fun salad in the summer, a, uh, a slice of onion on a burger. Um, if you serve raw onion, which is, I always say, uh, not really the fine food for your fine dining. I mean, you start eating raw onion and everything tastes like raw onion, you know. You serve a, a, an appetizer with a bunch of raw onion, especially chopped in big chunk, and then your, your lobster bisque will taste like onion, your scallop will taste like onion, everything will be awful. And then you go home, like, in your cup, ooh, onion. <laughs> um, 
So a raw onion, I would use uh, either a red or maybe a shallot. But yes, you're right, uh, Lou. If you uh, Vidalia onion or Maori onion, which are very sweet, uh, you can uh, you can play, make a soup so to, to do something a little bit different, or uh, yeah, all kinds of uh, fun stuff. And you realize that uh, if you want to caramelize an onion, actually, a sweet onion would uh, give a better pro a better um, a result. Since uh, when you sweat your onion first and you remove all the, uh, the sulfur and all the liquid and the more sugar in the onion, well, the more sugar residue will have in the pan and the darker and the more the, the, more the uh, onion will caramelize and the prettier and the nicer they're going to be in flavor. Um, so, yes, yeah, pretty much uh, Spanish onion most of the time. Red onion for raw raw food or gazpacho, or if you have to put some red onion, raw onion into something. White onion, actually, I have no clue. I don't think I've ever used a white onion. I wouldn't know what to use with, with white onions. You use them the same way. Yeah. Um, I always use them, you know, just whatever reason. I mean, they're just they're a cleaner look than the, the yellow onion. I don't, right. I, this is the only way I can... And red onion also, if you want to start sweating them or whatever, they start bleeding also. You use a red, red onion, chop the red onion, and you sweat it, deglaze with one, and use a cream sauce, for example, you're going to have a little tinge of color into your sauce. Well, and then the red onion loses most of its color, too. And it Correct. Right. Of... The, Correct. White, the white onion I like to put on the grill. They, they, they really turn out nice as far as, you know, putting it on like a, a grilled vegetable uh, platter or something along those lines, or even on your burger itself, you know, that way it looks nice, you know, the white and the char from the grill. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely can understand that the uh, person that uh, not used for cooking could be a little confused with all those onions. Exactly. Yeah. And just a shallot, actually, constantly people ask me, you know, what's a shallot? Why do you use it? And what's the difference between a shallot and an onion? Mm -hmm. And my first answer is $3 a pound. But uh, <laughs> if there is $3 a pound difference, it's because there is a difference of taste also. And shallots are much finer, much nicer. I mean, uh, uh, the French, for example, would not think of making a sauce without using shallot. I would using onion instead of shallot. That wouldn't work. And so she also said, same with tomatoes. I always just use whatever my hand lands on. But what's the best kind of tomato to use for in salads or pasta or bruschetta, etc.? Well, tomato is uh, the best. The best tomato for her to use is to grow them in a backyard and uh, and use them, or buy them in a. Um, uh, buy your tomato at a farmer's market, making sure that uh, they come from a uh, farm, not from uh, the produce uh, store downtown. Um, uh, most people probably don't know that 95% uh, of tomatoes in America are picked green, and they are placed in those little flat uh, cardboard flats that uh, you may have noticed lock on to one another and you can pile them up uh, six foot tall and they actually make column of those things wrap them up in saran wrap and uh, keep them in a uh, in a cool place and they stay green the tomatoes stay green for months and when they're ready to uh, to ship them to uh, to the market they just put a hose on top of the tomato uh, on top of the column and inject a, a uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, no, it's uh, acetylene gas. And the gas being heavier than air just falls down and film, fills that whole column of tomato wrapped in saran wrap. And within three days, the tomato turned red. 
and uh, then they ship them to market so this is also why sometimes you cut a red tomato and the inside is completely green or white yeah uh, i think they probably didn't leave it long enough in the thing so the best thing is really to uh, to grow your own or and for that very reason tomato sauces uh, you usually have a better result using canned tomato to use a tomato sauce than the little cheap uh, roma tomato whatever you can find in your supermarket mm -hmm. And then, of course, the difference between a, a Roma, a Campari, a San Marzano, or all those kind of tomatoes is uh, basically the shape of it. It should be, uh, and San Marzano being like oblong, uh, everybody just, just, just talks and dreams about San Marzano tomato. They're wonderful, they, of course, when you get them in can from Italy, because, again, uh, all the stuff uh, from Italy is probably not GMO. And uh, I'm sure they... Um, then probably make an effort and make sure they are at the best ripeness when they can them. Uh, here it's a different story. And again, uh, here American tomato, canned American tomatoes are definitely riper than uh, mm -hmm. than the fresh ones since they don't ripen them with gas in the can. So they have right. to use the, the the fully fully riped tomatoes. Yeah, it's a little, uh, uh, and this is something actually I was a little disappointed 10 years ago when we moved, I moved to Washington DC here to Phoenix. I was expecting uh, some incredible uh, produce like you see in California. And uh, even farmers market, and we uh, we were involved with farmer market for years here. And uh, Lou, actually, I know that wherever you usually you work, you buy from a farmers market and you buy your stuff. The quality here in Arizona, sadly in Phoenix, I think is very limited to compare to. Uh, I mean, if you go to like the Santa Monica farmers market in, uh, or the Brentwood farmers market in, during the week in uh, in California, it's mind-boggling the quality of the fruit, the vegetable, the flowers that that. It's a little disappointing here, I think. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't have the variety. Right, and 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 uh, let me add one more thing about vegetables and supermarkets, actually, because I've heard this from a uh, supermarket manager, and the manager of a supermarket told me about six years ago, the, uh, explained to me why they don't buy local. They don't buy. Uh, uh, they may actually put a big sign in their window: "We support local farmer. We buy local stuff." It's a, it's a, it's a whole bunch of bunk. It's completely wrong. The reason why they don't buy local is if you were to buy corn from a local guy, and the guy would come from Wilcox or whatever here in Arizona, and come to Scottsdale, he's gonna come with his truck, he's gonna dump uh, two huge containers of corn in the back uh, loading dock of the supermarket, and some are gonna be three, three inch long, some are gonna be a foot long, some are gonna be big, some are gonna be yellow, some are white, some are ugly, some are not. And that doesn't work for a supermarket. First of all, the supermarket manager would have to put three kids back there to sort them, clean them, and all that stuff. Maybe actually rewrap them. And they're gonna be all different sizes, different color, different shape. And people want, well, look at a supermarket. You want the perfect looking apple, the perfect looking tomato, the perfect looking grape. Nobody cares what it tastes like. Yeah. And, uh, and it's kind of sad. Well, say what you want about Whole Foods. I don't shop there a ton, but I shop there sometimes, and at least they do have local produce that's labeled, and I like it because they label, I think it's mostly all grown in the U.S., but they label where it's grown because sometimes in the grocery store in Albertsons, I know their garlic comes from China and stuff like that a lot. I've seen that, yes. Yeah, and, it's, and sometimes they, I was trying to find stuff that wasn't from China, and sometimes their stuff isn't labeled. I noticed where the country where it comes from. I thought they had to. I thought produce had to be labeled for the. Maybe uh, the, 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 I couldn't. The I couldn't see. I believe they have to. Do you think that food should be labeled if it's GMO? Yes. Yep. 
Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we should check. I don't know what happened in Vermont. Remember Vermont? Vermont had voted to label GMO stuff. Yeah. And then they were, uh, they were sued by Monsanto, and Monsanto won. Mm-hmm. And had the whole thing removed. I don't know where it stands now, if a judge reversed it or not. But uh, yes, I think definitely you should know what we eat. Um, and maybe one of these days we, uh, we're going to do a little podcast talking about gluten-free. Because this is interesting also that uh, you don't have that phenomenon going on in Europe. And uh, uh, the funny thing is you go to Italy and uh, every other pizzeria in their window have a sign in English only that said uh, gluten-free crust available. I was laughing when we went to Italy. I know, you remember you, I remember you sending me a picture of this. <laughs> and it was funny that it was in English. It was not in Italian or anything no. because nobody else is interested but some Americans. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we need to talk about that gluten-free phenomenon someday. All right, well, I guess that does it. No rapid fire. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. See? What's in that coffee cup? <laughs> Nothing left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no problem. Okay. Manhattan or Moscow Mule? Moscow. What's a Moscow Mule? It's good vodka, huh? It's vodka, ginger beer, Ooh. and lime. Yeah, don't, you don't need the... Really? the you, people that put the... No, and you have to drink the, it in a copper cup. Yeah, and people that use the, 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 you know, the top shelf uh, vodkas, that's just stupid because... It's a mixed freaking drink. You could you could use well. I love Moscow Mule. I know. I love this stuff. Actually, yeah. beer with vodka. But it's not. So you just it's, just just increase your your alcohol intake. But no, ginger, ginger beer is not is not alcoholic. It's like ginger ale, but it's not so sweet. Yeah. It's oh, more oh, spicy. Oh, it's more spicy. It gets you in the throat, and, and uh, it's good stuff. Actually, I had an Irish Mule. Good What's that, Jameson the whiskey? Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. else was just saying that they had one, and They're that good. sounds delicious. Oh yeah, and I actually had it with uh, with gin too. So anybody wants to bring me a mule, that'd be that'd be fine, and we'll just taste test and see which one is better. So we should do. We should start doing taste tests. We should get some bartenders in here one of these uh, podcasts. That'd yeah, be that'd ugly. Be, that'd be fun. <laughs> Let's do that. That'd be fun. I'm I'm all I'm all on that. Moscow mules are only good in a in a copper mug though. Right. Yeah, that's the whole. Well, it's kind of bullshit though, because they say that the something about the chemical when it mixes with copper, it like has a chemical reaction and changes oh. something. But ninety-five percent of the mugs you see, they're lined with tin or oh. yeah, because food yeah. shouldn't be touching copper. Right. right? <laughs> so I don't know. Um, your favorite restaurant to eat at the bar? Any restaurant that's ever crowded and. The, the bar is the only one, it's the only seat available. Usually a sushi restaurant. I like to yeah. sit at the bar in a sushi restaurant. You always uh, something to see. And again, since I um, I've learned sushi, I'm uh, became a sushi snob. I've learned sushi with uh, Kaz from uh, Kaz uh, Bistro in Washington D.C. Probably one of the most talented Japanese chef in the country. And he told me all those little tidbits about making things. And now I watch those guys at the uh, at the sushi bar, and I can't tell you in two minutes whether they were trained by Japanese or if they're. Oh really? Or yeah, yeah, it's really funny. What do you look for? And, well, everything. For example, the uh, the rice is always on a stool, never on the same counter that where they roll. If you notice, the rice should be on a stool next to them. The the knife, when a, a trained Japanese chef cuts a piece of fish, it's always in one stroke, either forwards or backwards, but in one stroke. Now, granted, their knives are razor sharp. But, you know, we cut, and actually, 
try it next time you cut some rotuna or something. Mm -hmm. If you just cut forward with your knife, you slice it halfway and then come back backwards to slice the rest, that's when you see your slice of, um, the slice of, especially when you slice them thin, you see your slice of food kind of losing its shape and tearing actually when you do <laughs> forward and backwards. So they cut everything in one stroke. A piece of fish maybe twist a little bit in one side and then they just uh, uh, reshaped it on the plate. A whole bunch of crazy stuff like this. Definitely the amount, but that I guess any sushi uh, sushi chef will figure that. The amount of rice that goes on the nori, you never go back, you never go back for more rice. And of course, horror, you never put any extra rice back in the bin. I mean, so a, a good sushi chef should, and again, depending on a, a California roll, a single roll, a, a big roll, etc., it's always a different amount of rice that they put on the nori, depending on the thickness and the size of the of the roll. Well, so that's it's just 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 fun stuff, and uh, I really enjoy being at the at the bar in a sushi place. It was a big thing in New York a few months ago, or a year ago maybe, where they the health department said that sushi chefs had to wear gloves to make yeah. sushi, and I guess they don't do that. They right. have to feel it in their hands. And so I can't remember who it was, but there's this one sushi chef that's really famous there, and he refused to do it, so he just closed his restaurant because he said it's not. Really? He said that's not sushi then. Wow. He wouldn't compromise. Yeah, it's true. The health department requires people to wear gloves if you uh, serve food that is not going to be cooked. Right. So salad making, sandwich making, all that stuff they should have. Which makes sense. I mean, uh, uh, the worst thing you want to do is go buy a sandwich and the guy is there, he just tells you how much it is. You give you 350 he gives you the change, he counts the coins, the bill, and then he goes and poof, make your salad. sandwich with the same, uh, the same, uh, same fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Philadelphia street vendors right there. That's nasty. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The soft pretzels. Yeah, he's scratching his nuts, and I'm not talking the peanuts either. So yeah, you want that? Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's gross. Good touch. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix or iPick? Netflix. Yeah, probably Netflix too, because iPick is bad food anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's even a bad burger. Twenty dollar bad burger, probably. Yeah. yeah. Favorite music to listen to in the kitchen? It all depends on the on the mood. Did you have a good? good day yesterday or are you busy or whatever I'd listen to metal if you're busy and you know you're in the weeds or whatever or you know if you're having a good day then you know disco or, or whatever else like that. Yeah, I still go disco <laughs> I'd go Led Zeppelin real hard real loud and finally culinary trend you're sick of I think you said it the other day when, uh, when the we were micro, talking about the microgreens the microgreens Everything's got freaking microgreens on it. It's like I ordered, I ordered scallops, not a freaking salad. You know, it's like, it's ridiculous. It's it's overdone. I do that sometimes. I buy microgreens if I'm gonna make something fancy. Well, if you're gonna buy, you know, microgreens, it's six or seven dollars a pound, or you know, or or more. It's ridiculous. It's like, give me another freaking scallop instead of giving me all that freaking microgreens on top of it. Stay tuned for our interview with Chef Tracy Dempsey. Food Connection is brought to you by Classic Cooking Academy. You can find us at www.ccacademy.edu or check out our Classic Cooking Facebook page for up-to-date information on classes, events, recipes, cooking tips, and more. We're here today with uh, Tracy Dempsey. Tracy Dempsey is actually I, uh, driving here. I asked uh, Danielle to Google Pastry Chef in Phoenix and your name came first. It was not on the first page, but uh, it came first as pastry chef, so congratulations. Oh, and uh, uh, definitely, um, I think you are 
when we talk about pastry chef where we go I mean it's not there's more restaurants that advertise pastry by uh, Tracy Dempsey that do not so congratulations on this I understand that you actually have a master in French yes I do what, what brought you into pastry um, it was really the direction I always wanted to go in um, as a young girl growing up in um, the Southeast Asia I had I was just fixated with the hotel restaurant industry mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to go to hotel restaurant management school I wanted to work in a hotel I thought I had to work my way up from housekeeping to become a chef you know when you're that young right, right, you know right. you think all sorts of things so I ended up in business school actually and I didn't do very well in math <laughs> but I excelled in language and I ended up pursuing a degree in French I studied Japanese I studied wow. Russian Wow. And I ended up becoming a teacher, and I decided I'll be a professor because that seemed to be the way I was going. Right. And then one day my husband said, you know, you're not happy doing what you're doing. Why don't you do what you love to do? And I had a cake business on the side. I'd been taking cake classes. I cooked. I did entertaining. So I went to culinary school. Terrific. And what brought you from Southeast Asia here? (laughs) (laughs) That was a long path. My father is recently retired he's a petroleum geologist and his job took us all around and I came back to the States to go to college and I went from I actually ended up in Arkansas of all places my parents wanted me to be close to family Um, I guess they thought I was a wild child and needed my grandparents to keep an eye on me so I went to school there I met my husband we moved to Oklahoma to go to the University of Oklahoma Norman um, they have a great meteorology program. My husband's a meteorologist. Okay. And I finished, I did my master's there. I started a PhD in French. And my husband was offered an 18-month assignment out here, working with Salt River Project on a monsoon project. So it sounded great. Let's leave. I wanted to get out of there. Yeah. It was a great place at the time. You know, it was good. But I really wanted to go back west. I'm originally from California. Mm-hmm. So we came out here for 18 months, and that was 24, I think, 20-plus years ago. Wow. Yeah. So we stayed. <laughs> and your husband is still a meteorologist? Or? He is. Mm-hmm. I was in uh, around Elgin and Sanoita doing the wine tour not long ago, I think was maybe a year or so ago. And uh, I think I was visiting Callahan Winery and saw your husband there using pressing grape and doing making wine. Oh, yes. <laughs> so funny, actually. They just, um, Lisa and Kent Callahan just came by this morning. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and um, yeah, they've been, my husband, we've been friends for quite a long time. And my husband helps with, gives some forecasting, you know, information when he's asked, especially during harvest or, right. you know, and then we've gone down there. Um, to help our friends at Dos Cabezas again. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I like it. Maybe one of these days we're going to have to do a, take a trip down there and interview the, uh, Ken Callahan. I think, yeah, I think it's awesome. one, of those, uh, one of the better wine I tasted from that region is from his winery. Mm-hmm. He makes a tannat, actually, that's out of yep. this world, which yep. is uh, uh, kind of unusual for Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I must say also, since we're talking about wine, it's not really away from pastry uh, for a minute, but... Uh, when I moved to Arizona 10 years ago, there was, uh, I think, eight or 10 winery, and uh, there is close to 100 today. Mm-hmm. So Arizona is uh, really moving uh, incredibly in that direction. Yeah, it's exciting. So back, back to pastry. The, um, do you have any flavors that you, uh, that you like particularly, or you like to bring back in most dessert? Yeah, I do. I think... I and think for what reason? For what reasons? A lot of things that I do are built around memory. Back when I was 
a little bit freer when I worked for, um, you know, I worked for Nobu at Seesaw, did things. I had a lot of different flavor profiles I could pursue based on memories. And, you know, at Nobu's I could play with um, a lot of Asian flavors that I just love. I mean, I love playing with um, curries and things uh -huh. and desserts. Um, garam masala was one of my favorite things to have to play with. Um, black sesame seeds. I played with wasabi. Um, and now I've kind of had, you know, because now I'm... A lot of Asian flavor? A lot of Asian flavor. I think mm -hmm. so. You know, and it's just a, something that I, even at home, it's what I like to cook. But, and then living here, a lot of the southwestern chilies, I love to play with chilies. Um, I enjoy playing with things like mesquite flour, that kind of interesting mm -hmm. nutty flavor that it has. Um, and local honeys, things like that, herbs. Lemon verbena is probably one of my all-time favorite I was going to ask, I would ask you, what's your favorite favorite combination? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. I'd say that um, really Earl Grey tea and lavender and lemon. All I right. love, I just, I don't know. I also lived in England, so I think that that's where right. that comes from too. You were just talking about your husband as a meteorologist, and I know when you were emailing trying to find a good time, you were saying that it's hard being a small business owner and being a pastry chef and trying to balance your time. Mm -hmm. how, how do you do that? How do you do it all? I probably do a very poor job of it, actually. <laughs> the, the really tough thing, the thing about my husband and what he does is our seasons are complete opposites. Because he does a um, product for his company for SRP, he works on temperature highs. He's one. He's actually the only person who does what he does this time of year. So he's on seven days a week, 24 hours a day, whatever he has to do. You know, if it thunders on a Saturday night, he's working Sunday. It's okay. it, that's just how it is. And then when he slows down, when he stops his project, that's, that's when we start ramping up and we're really busy. So we try to, what we've done is we agree, we go to California twice a year, we go to wine country, um, we have some friends there that we visit, we go stay at the beach for about a week, make up our wine pickups, um, cook a little bit while we're there, go to the farmer's markets, just get inspired, and then come back and it's, I, I call this home, I'll tell my husband, I'm going, I'm going home, I'll see you later, and he's like, what did you just say? <laughs> and I'll, I'm going home and I'll be home later. How about that? But it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's I'm a sure. really hard thing. Yeah, but it's fun. I love what I do, and it's um, it's not really like work most of the time. Yeah, that's awesome. And you do desserts for you know a lot of our favorite restaurants, Crudo and Citizen Public House. Where else? Oh, uh, probably no. No, I don't no? actually. Mm -mm. No, I think um, Tracy Wilbur, another Tracy's doing some desserts for them. She's doing Southern style okay. pies. Um, I take care of Nook, Arcadia, and Nook downtown. Um, we do a few things for stockyards, and um, we do we have a coffee, couple coffee shops we work with, Press Coffee, and it's it's good. It's good, and it's so over, you know, it's so diverse, and yeah. it's not at all what I thought I would be doing. You know, it's somebody we need to talk to, Press Coffee Press guy. Coffee. Yeah, Fridays he does public cuppings. Does he? Yeah. Oh, just call and make a reservation. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, but it's. But that's that, those are the restaurants, and but like I said, it's not in 2009 when I left Cowboy Chow was not what I thought I would be doing. Well, I don't think you're doing too bad. I mean, uh, look, <laughs> at, look at this place. I mean, wow. Well, thank you. How long have you been here in this location? We are going on our fifth year. Oh wow! Yeah. I didn't you've been open for so long. We haven't. We've been open since November. Oh okay. Yeah. So we've always been a wholesale dessert business, and then we would do pop-ups, um, take custom orders weddings and things like that, but in November I made the decision to turn our front that you came in through into mm -hmm. a little store. So nice. Thank you. Thanks. Nice, What's yeah. the craziest 
custom ordering. I did a really, we, we did a really, really interesting sculpted cake. Kind of looked like a lizard giving birth in the desert. Um, and had to deliver it up into the mountains. It was covered in fondant, so that was probably the craziest because we were so worried because the elevation can impact the fondant and cause bubbling. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. It's, right, so you don't want it to be too tight when you're down here and you get up there and you pat it and finish it. But that was probably, that was one of the most interesting, I think, yeah. What's your favorite thing to do? Like large cake, celebration cake, or a small uh, individual uh, restaurant dessert? Small individual restaurant desserts. Is there something you don't like since, uh, I would imagine you have a few desserts that you cannot really make for restaurants. Uh, things that have like, uh, I mean, so you have to, to, to play with something that has a couple of days shelf life, I would the, imagine. Well, actually, we, we deliver every day. Every day. Yeah, so basically, the kind of the concept of what we do is we're a pastry chef but we're, um, we're a pastry chef for a restaurant, but we're just not occupying space in their kitchen. And so every day we're sending things out. Gotcha. Yep. What's your favorite gadget in a kitchen? Um, my favorite gadget, I really, I, I love microplanes. I love a microplane zester. You can do so many different things with it, you know, right. besides zesting. But probably my, my chef's knife is my favorite right. go-to tool, right? When we walked here, I walked and we saw about four or five, uh, four or five uh, a young lady cooking in your bakery there, in your pastry mm -hmm. shop. Um, what do you look for when you hire them? Do you, do, you, do you care about a big, important resume or you basically give them one day and said, uh, tomorrow you start and I'll tell you at the end of the day whether you stay or not? That's the route I go. I do stages. I, right. I look for attitude. I look, exactly. You know, okay. I don't care if you have a big, you know, if you went to school and you have some fancy you know, degree, it doesn't really mean anything right. until I see you work and until, and there's a culture in our kitchens, right? And that you have to also be a fit both that way and be able to work within, you know, work within the group and then be willing to be imprinted upon. And right. I, a lot of my girls, are, my, a lot of my young women are very young. I hired most of them out of culinary school. Um, so it doesn't really matter to you whether the people graduate from a prestigious pastry mm -hmm. school or some, some uh, local uh, pastry program in a college? Not at all. Uh, in fact, I like, the local, I like our local programs and I, that's actually, I would go into um, Scottsdale Community College because that's where I taught. Very good. And I would substitute and a lot of the women working for me are students that I subbed for and I identified them and I mm -hmm. said, you need to come. You know, are you interested? Come talk to me. Let's do a stage. Yeah. Well, I know that Scottsdale Community College has a, actually a, a good uh, pastry program mm -hmm. uh, since we actually know the, one of the pastry chefs, uh, Susan Coleman. Yes, I love Susan. Yes. Who, taught, who worked for us for a few years <laughs> yeah. and she's, uh, she's wonderful. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear she's there. Yes, yeah. I believe she's still here. She's still there. So you're in Tempe, and I used to live here maybe five years ago, but I, I lived here for seven years. It's changed so much since I've been here. Where are your favorite places to eat and hang oh out in Tempe? <laughs> you know, really my favorite, it's funny because I lived here when I first moved here. We okay. lived here and I taught at ASU. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it's been interesting to see how much it's changed. I remember when Changing Hands was on Mill Avenue. Mm -hmm and um, there was Pizzeria Uno, there were a yep. bunch of little places, you know. But I always loved, um, I used to teach a night class, and I would go to Pita Jungle for dinner mm. that night and have a thousand beans and <laughs> rice. I loved that dish. But Haji Baba's gotta be one of my I favorite. I love Haji Baba. I used to the chicken shawarma plate, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mel has changed so much. I it's, it's, yeah. I don't even recognize it anymore. I mean, Noka Witch is there. I love, you know, I love what Elliot's doing there. That's really exciting to see. And yeah, I mean, yeah, it's nice that they have more local 
restaurants there. Yes, because it was so um, not local for a yeah, while. Yeah, it was like Pizzeria Uno. Yes, yeah. Chili's. Chili's. Well, I mean, there's still a Chili's, but yeah. <laughs> since, you, since you make a, a lot of pastry for various restaurants in town, do mm -hmm. you take in consideration uh, uh, the dietary, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, dietary dietary substitution, like for diabetics, for vegan? Um, we do offer some vegan options and we always try to have a, what I call a wheat-free option because we're not a gluten-free kitchen, so I can't, you know, I, I would never suggest that somebody with celiac eat our desserts. Right, but you do but make do. some gluten-free yeah. things. And, yeah, yes. My chef, I have chefs that that's what they ask for, um, and so I'll tailor some things to that for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's. I think today it's fair to say that when we say gluten-free, we uh, exclude celiac because uh, I mean I believe it was one percent of the population is celiac, and uh, yes. it didn't grow to thirty-five percent uh, right. four years ago well, yeah, overnight. Yeah, it's, so it's just it is such an and it's such an amazing phenomenon because and then you always have to be um, conscious of the health department because if you claim you have gluten-free and they see that and then they can come down on you. Oh really? Oh, I did mm -hmm. not know yeah. they. Uh, I can't claim to be gluten free. This okay. There's all that variance, in, you know, stuff that's involved. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Well, that I sense. didn't realize it was regulated either. Yeah. So oh, I always so. tread carefully with that. I mean, all of my menus, Citizen Public House and the Gladi Gladly, they they try to offer gluten free options, and I had to put a little disclaimer on my thing, just saying, you know, I can call this wheat free. If you call it gluten-free, that's okay, but it can't come back to me because I don't claim to be a gluten-free Right, your oven is not gluten-free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used yeah. to have the same thing. We had a pizza shop open for a while. Yeah. We had lots of requests for gluten-free pizzas. And yeah, I never, I never got it, but uh, yeah. I understood we charge a dollar fifty extra yes. for a cardboard pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I do understand. I mean, I, uh, it's a different, uh, I think, story for another podcast talking about the, oh the gluten-free phenomenon that's yes. happening in the United States. All right, what else we're doing <laughs> if we talk about here is, how would you consider the job market right now for young pastry people? Is When I started, now again, it was a few years back, uh, 30 some years ago, restaurant did not have pastry mm -hmm. chef, period. Mm -hmm. But again, we had uh, creme caramel, creme brulee, and uh, chocolate mousse on the menu. That right. was about it. Uh, so any cook can do this. Is there now a, a more of a trend, even a, a, a restaurant really make a make a, an effort to have a pastry chef or a little pastry area? You know, I think um, I think nationally, yes. I think what happened to us when what we were pretty much ground zero for what happened in 2007, 2009, that changed. I think it really changed the makeup of you know what restaurant chefs were willing to put in there. I mean, obviously the resorts still have pastry chefs. But independently right. owned places, I think that's why I found a niche because it saved them that payroll, it saved them the inventory, saved them the mm -hmm. space. Um, but I mean, I look out there on you know I look at Craigslist, I look at job listings, and yeah, there's still some jobs out there. But it's I think it's changed. I think the market's changed. I see a lot of the cooks in the kitchens dabbling in desserts so that they can maybe mm -hmm. express themselves that way. Mm -hmm. But mostly they're still into savory. Um, I think it's a tight market. I think it's tough. I really do for obviously again resorts, big restaurants, you know, Las Vegas, sure. I think it's it's good. Right. But here I see, you know, locally I'd say it's still I mean, I'm seeing a few more pastry chefs, you know, pastry chefs, but it's not like it used to be. And right. But well, I think I, it's going to change. I would say a big di I would see also a big difference between uh, you just mentioned Las Vegas and actually I was over there this weekend. I actually went to look at uh, I was staying at the Winds. And um, we had breakfast at their, at, at their buffet. 
and the desserts, the desserts in a hotel like this, everything is uh, glazed mirror, mousses, powder, yeah. uh, the crust are bought and filled with, yeah. uh, with commercial pastry cream that they probably make in a microwave. Or, yeah. Uh, what do you think of all that stuff? I mean, I, I understand that when you do feed 5,000 people, there is no way to, or it's probably easier to make a, a sheet cake and then cut it with a guitar right, and right. cut it in small portion. I, I do think that's the unfortunate reality of just dealing with that quantity, right. but, um, but, I, I'm, but it makes me happy when I see like our little restaurants and their chefs, their pastry chefs who are doing totally from scratch things. I mean, I'll, I'll admit we get, you know, when we do big parties, we'll get our little tart shells brought in, mm -hmm. um, but all of our desserts are from scratch. And I think that's how things should be. Mm -hmm. They're Absolutely. from scratch, they're, you know, we use as much local stuff as we can, always keeping in mind, you know, our chef's budgets and things like that, but yeah. Who are your favorite local purveyors? I, oh gosh, there's so many. Um, I love Hayden Mills Flower right now. It's a lot of fun playing with all of their products. Fossil Creek Creamery. You know, they're, they're for sale. The cheese, they make the goat cheese, they're for sale. And Crow's Dairy, I love their cheese as well. Um, who else are we using? Um, I use Homeboy's Hot Sauces in one of my brittles. Love his, and let's say I use bitters from Arizona Bitters Lab as well. And um, there's Wonder Mustard that I've used in one of our ice creams, actually. Right. Yeah, but there's a, there's, it's exciting too, I think. When I first started in the farmer's markets back in 2009, when they, like the Scottsdale Farmer's Market down in Little Town Scottsdale. Um, it's been exciting to see how much it's changed and how many local producers there are. There's mm -hmm. so much, there's so many creative people out there. It's amazing. I love it. So I have just a few kind of quick fire questions for you. Okay. Um, favorite midnight snack? Um, that would be potato chips, salt and vinegar. <laughs> Manhattan or Moscow Mule? Oh, a Manhattan. Uh, favorite restaurant to eat at the bar? Oh, I love to eat at the bar at the Gladly, actually. Do you do desserts for the Gladly? I do, I thought yeah. So. Mm -hmm. uh, Netflix or iPick? Netflix. Favorite music to listen to in the kitchen? Queens of the Stone Age, anything by them. And the culinary trend you're sick of? That I'm sick of? I am so over the molecular gastronomy stuff. Yeah, weird powders, and I, I, I had my whole kit. I'm so over it. Bacon powder and yeah. olive oil powder. Yeah. And yeah. 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 I think actually molecular gastronomy, those little spherification, all that stuff, is fun now at the bar. It's more, it's yes. more used by a bar bartender yes. than by pastry yeah. chef, actually. Yeah. What advice would you give a, 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 to a prospective culinary student before beginning their education? It's a good question. Um, I would really advise them to think hard about is this what they're really passionate about. This is not an industry we enter to become rich and famous. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of long hours, it's a lot of missed holidays, a lot of missed time with family, friends that may be really challenging to get your head around, right, as a, as a young person. Um, even as an older person sometimes it's like, wait a minute, I'm here and everybody's there having a party. And to recognize that you have to work your way up. It's not, you don't graduate and um, you're a chef suddenly. It's you still, you have to pay your dues. You're just getting, you're getting a foundation going to culinary school. Mm -hmm. Or you're getting a foundation entering a restaurant as a young cook. Um, but respect the people who are teaching you. Learn from them. Keep your mouth shut. And yes, chef. There you go. Learn. Yeah. And get a thick skin. 
really, right? Get yeah. that fixed. I actually in. went to culinary school, but I didn't pursue a kitchen or a career in the kitchen. But I don't think I have a big enough skin to handle that. It's it takes time. Yeah. I mean, there's still things that make me go, oh, gosh, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's I just it's like I'm not gonna cry over anything. It's food. I'm not saving lives here. I'm trying to make people happy. You know, what's, what's the most gratifying part of your job? Lately, it's been seeing some of the young people that I hired as young cooks out of the you know culinary school, seeing them now be becoming pastry chefs. One of my, um, Brad Otteson is now the pastry chef at the Buttes, I think it's the top of the rock over there with Greg Wiener, yeah. and um, that's been, seeing some of my, my kids growing yeah. up and taking you know those positions, it's been really gratifying. Yeah. Watching my team grow, yeah, it's been, that's, that's what I, I love, you know, obviously I love desserts, I love making people happy. But I'm with these people every day. We're probably together more often than we are with our families. And watching them grow and develop as pastry cooks, pastry chefs of the future, that's, I love that. How many people do you have on staff? Um, I have five um, cooks. I have a, two delivery drivers. I have a den mother. Um, she kind of keeps me grounded and does my books. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's what we have, yeah. When you're not at work, where do you go for great pastry? <laughs> here's no the way, horrible, huh? Well, here's the horrible thing is that I really, I don't, I don't eat a lot of dessert um, out. I mean, if I go to a restaurant where they have a pastry chef, I will order dessert because I want to support what right. they're doing. Right, and see what but they're doing. Typically, yeah. Typically, um, I'm getting older and I just can't eat as much as I used to, so I usually skip dessert. All right. I know, isn't that terrible? <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, I kind of do the same thing actually. I would rather have that Manhattan. <laughs> I gotta describe that little uh, that little platter here that Aww. is in front of us, and uh, Tracy has prepared. I'm looking at uh, some pickled vegetables, uh, uh, some cheese, pickled uh, uh, grapes, uh, homemade ricotta with a little uh, bit of olive oil, and it looks like bacon and chives. Pistachio. And pistachio. I didn't sorry. put any bacon in here. Ooh, ooh. Can you believe that? <laughs> And um, absolutely delicious. And then obviously I see some brownie and some... Um, lavender shortbreads. Lavender oh, shortbread nice. and, uh, and, lemon. and lemon bars. Yeah. Beautiful. We're going to have to to turn the microphone off and uh, taste this because we're going to make some, uh, <laughs> some disgusting noises <laughs> for eating this. Yeah. Tracy, thank you so much for having us. Thank and uh, And hopefully we'll... Um, Maybe you can come up our neighborhood and uh, maybe teach a class. Someday. That would be fun. That would be great. Especially, I didn't realize you used to teach, so yeah, that's perfect. Or you could teach French. We could teach the class in French. In French, How about yeah. That? Well, I don't know about that. How <laughs> <laughs> big that would be. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you so much. been a classic cooking production hosted by chef pascal diano chef lou swartz and danielle sanders produced by danielle sanders